0: This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. You know, as we are getting started this morning, I just I, I was thinking about uh, what Jason just did in sharing that hymn with us and uh, I couldn't help but think, you know, in Ephesians 5, it talks about the value of speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Amen, it's just, you know, it's one of those things where we remind each other, sometimes, not just in the word alone, but there is, you know, these, uh, you know, when we talk about systematic theology, theology in general, I, you know, a lot of times, those words kind of uh, set people abuzz. They're little trigger words, oh no, theology. But you realize like we all do theology right you know we all have this understanding of who god is what we think about god we coalesce verses from the bible that help us to think and frame what it is that we believe about him we don't just like quote whole chapters of the bible at least i don't i don't know maybe you do Uh, but um, anyhow we're reminded through those songs we speak things to one another and it brings life. And so, I would say to you, even this morning, if you like, you know, wor- you think to yourself, "Well, worship's not my," you know, you, when you when I say worship, you think songs, and you say, "Well, I'm not big into music or whatever." Uh, I would just encourage you, like, if even if you're not a big musician person, like, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You don't have to be into the music to be able to speak life to others around you. So. All right, that one's for free. Hey, my name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life. Glad to have you here for another installment in the Gospel of John. Today we are continuing our theme of talking about eternal life. It is the major theme throughout the book of uh, the Gospel of John. And uh, if you haven't been here with us, I want to cue you in on a couple of things about this book. Uh, that not only is the theme eternal life, uh, it's speaking about what eternal life means, um, but that throughout the text, even the use of the word life in the English most every time, very few exceptions, uh, the words that are employed for for life, sozo and zoe in the original Greek when it was written, are words that are talking about qualitative kind of life. In other words, they're not talking about biological life, not talking about existence, There are words for that in Greek uh, from which, you know, you get your ideas about biology. We study life. The science of life is biology. It comes from the Greek word bios. And so there is that use uh, that occurs in places uh, in the text. Uh, It certainly occurs throughout the entire witness of the Bible. But here in the Gospel of John, there is a specific message that's being driven home to you and I that you and I can experience that abundant life, that eternal life in the here, in the now, in the present. There's an expectation that the God life invades our life by our invitation, and through that we experience God's working in us and through us to live a wholly different kind of life even here in the now, in the present. The emphasis being in the Gospel of John, not about you getting into heaven, but about getting heaven into you. And so the overflow of that is what we call uh, eternal life or abundant life, life that is the God life. So today we're looking at a rather long text. Last week we had a really short text. And so I know a lot of people are thinking, oh wow, this is great, we're like doing these smaller texts now, and maybe like we'll get out on time every week, you know, well, I'm going to try, but you know, actually this is like the longest text uh, in the Gospel of John that we're going to cover, it is the healing at the pool of Bethesda, and uh, there is from that a resulting number of conflicts that occur uh, in, in debating what Jesus has done, and they're going back and forth, there's... the the issue of it being a healing that takes place on the Sabbath, which was very intolerable for the Jews uh, in his day, but it also because it occurred in a place that was associated with pagan ritual and folklore in the city. So, uh, you know, this just becomes more than they can stand. An epic battle of words ensues uh, that there's so much for you and I to glean from, but the contrast here between the religion of the Jews and the Jesus culture that is becoming abundantly clear uh, is really you know, overflowing in this text. So it's so jam-packed, no good way to break it up. So we're going to try and just go through it and kind of you know, look at it as a, an overall picture, not get deep in the weeds on the details here. Uh, I hope that uh, it makes sense to you why we're dealing with it as a single text today. With that said, if you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please, whatever translation is in your lap is absolutely my favorite one because you're reading it. Let's take a look. John chapter 5, beginning verse 1, and we read these words. And after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids. Let me say that again. A multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works will, these, will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but will give all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. on whom you have set your hope for if you believed moses you would believe me for he wrote of me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words blessed be the reading of god's holy word so so much to unpack there i mean obviously 47 verses is a lot to cover um and uh you know, we could we could just, like, unpack for a while here. But I want to catch more of the spirit of the text and point out some key things to you this morning so you take something home. But, you know, the chapter opens, of course, at the pool. And the pool was rumored to uh, have healing properties. Uh, one of the things that uh, was about known about the pool uh, from writings and antiquities is that it would bubble up. Uh, now, you know, it, you... Living in Florida, we know a little something about underground springs that bubble up and, you know, either make the water warm or the water cooler, just depending on uh, what's uh, happening there. But uh, we have some understanding. And in this particular instance, uh, don't know if there was a lot of sulfur in the water. Uh, there is some writings and antiquities that would give us that idea that it was warm, sulfuric water uh, that, uh, you know, if you are experiencing certain uh, health conditions you know a nice warm uh, a nice hot spring full of bubbling sulfuric water if you can just hold your nose for a little bit could be very uh, you know have a, a real healing sense to your body uh, lots have been written over the years about people going to you know geysers and all kinds of springs and things like that so I just want you to kind of Kind of frame that that uh, you know we're not denying that the uh, pool had some great healing properties or something like that, but but around it had developed all kinds of uh, ideas, theology, if you will, that when people don't have an answer, uh, that they automatically kind of fill in the blanks, right? I mean, you know when things go bump in the night, doesn't your brain fill in the blanks you know right uh, and, and so um, Uh, The the reality is that uh, there was something happening here, and around it had developed a great deal of theology. uh, And in particular, people were uh, practicing a number of kind of pagan rituals. uh, And this whole uh, kind of culture had developed around this pool. Um, It's kind of intriguing. It was over by the Sheep Gate. Um, there is now just begun to be some evidence of where the pool was. Uh, for many years, nobody had any clue. We think recently we may have found it, but it apparently is dried up. But it was uh, buried under a lot of uh, uh, debris and rubble, and you know, underground now. So, nonetheless, um, it is believed to be under a particular church um, uh, there in in um, Jerusalem, but. Uh, that kind of culture that developed around it uh, was very syncretistic. And so you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, all the religious leaders, have kind of developed a contempt for it. You know, like on one hand, it's not because there is anything against getting in the water or people finding relief, but on the other hand, this kind of these theological practices that had developed, the, the culture, uh, the kind of pagan syncretism. Uh, this was the biggest fear of the Pharisees, was syncretism. Because as you look through, as you read the Old Testament, like that was kind of the primary problem within the, among the Jews, among the people of Israel, uh, was this issue of syncretism. They would go, yeah, yeah, you know, we've got the temple, and we've got God, you know, I mean, we, we worship God. And after we go to temple, we'll just, you know, go out here and plant uh, Asherah trees in our, you know, near our gardens and hope that Baal will fertilize uh, the ground uh, because of our Asherah pole or whatever. You know, they were just kind of like, you know, it's kind of like when Christians read, you know, their horoscope and treat one just like the other, you know, like they, they, they put their horoscope and their Bible on the same ground. I, not you. I mean, other people, you know, that do things like that. And that's called syncretism, right? When, and, and, and that's why it says very strongly in kind of the cornerstone uh, of the confession of the Old Testament Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, and you will love him with all all your heart soul mind and strength with your whole being that's the idea and that i will have no other gods before me in other words do not go to the horoscopes don't go to the stars don't go to the other gods don't go to baal don't go to asherah don't go to anything else you stay here focus on me hear my heart follow after me and i will be your god and you will be my people the problem is is that they were continually going he will be our god and we'll also do all these other things to which God had said specifically, don't do that. It, 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 those things are incongruent. You can't have this. One, one of these things is not like the other. Remember that from Sesame Street? Did any, Anybody raised on that street? Anybody? You know, okay. So, uh, and, and so the reality being that uh, they're, they're very concerned about these people. And so it says there's multitudes. When the word multitudes is used, I hear thousands. Not just hundreds, thousands. So this area is just like camped out with people. And Jesus comes into these colonnades, the, the five colonnades there, and he picks somebody to heal. Uh, I've often heard people say, well, you know, if healing was real, like why, do, why don't you just go into a hospital and like pray for everybody and empty out the hospitals? Well, it sounds great, but even Jesus didn't do that. because the gift is not subject to the person who has it. Uh, you have to do what the Father's doing. Now, why didn't God heal everybody in the place? I don't know. That's one of those things I'd like to ask someday. You know, I, 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 Here's what I do know. I know that you and I live in a fallen world. I know that oftentimes when Jesus was praying with somebody, Uh, that he would remove everybody else from the room and pray with them, uh, and uh, eliminating the issue of of, uh, people not having faith, not believing, uh, being present. Uh, It says several times in the text that Jesus uh, went someplace, and because of their lack of belief, he he could do no great miracles but only healed a few people, Um, So there does seem to be an element of where faith comes into play in this, that even Jesus would not uh, in a place where he was surrounded by people who had no belief. Um, I don't know what's going on here. I just know that he simply heals this one person. Now, in this one person, I know a lot of you have been watching The Chosen, so I'm just going to simply say, look, in the text he's nameless, faceless, no station in society, and I know the chosen has suggested that he was the brother of Simon the Zealot. Truth is, I could find nothing to back that up, not from church tradition or anything. So uh, it it's just makes for some some possible, you know, some possibility, but it's just not it's not historical uh, in, in any way. What you and I know is that he was, had been calling out, and in the midst of this, like, he, Jesus heals him. And that just got the, the Jews all worked up. Not because of his actual healing, they didn't seem to care about his plight. Or the plight of anyone there. They themselves are not going there and praying, right? I mean... What they're upset about is the rules. Now, one of the things I've shared with you before, um, and um, I would point out again, there is a a way of codifying the tradition in the Jews. So we have, uh, and I know my wife's going to say, you should have made a slide about this. You know, which I'm thinking right now, like you know, what would be really good is if I had a slide that had these words on there. That would be great. But uh, so uh, there are two. Uh, ways of codifying the tradition, Uh, and uh, uh, one of those in uh, the uh, Midrash is uh, a, a small book, not that small, about a thousand pages or so of codifying writings from the time. And one of the things that it said, it says repeatedly throughout the text, is this idea of that we will protect the people from breaking the law by building a fence around the law so that they cannot break the law. So the idea is, is, if, if this is, if this is ground zero, this is sin, we'll just put a fence back here so you can't get to ground zero. The truth is, your heart can get there whether you physically do or not. Hello? Right, Jesus spoke to that whole thing. He says, you know, if you're looking on a woman so t- as to lust after her, like you know, you've committed adultery in your heart. He didn't say they committed adultery. He said that the reality is your heart's already there. You and I can build fences all day long. That doesn't keep us from doing things we shouldn't. Right? I mean, you know. Um, You know, little Footloose fame. Remember the in in Footloose, the movie, if you ever saw Footloose. And he said, you know, the 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 mother is speaking to the father and says, uh, "You and I used to get excited about one another without ever touching one another. We just look across the room at each other and you know get excited. We we didn't have to be dancing, right? You know. And so uh, the reality is that where your heart is, that's where you'll go. So in this case, uh, they had built this. these fences around the law, but the law itself was not broken. In other words, the the real issue here was not the healing of the man. The the issue here is that tradition about the law said, don't carry your mat. Now, I've shared with you in the past that Part of the whole codification of tradition was things like, what defines breaking the Sabbath? Like, is it, are we breaking the Sabbath if we walk to synagogue? You know? And so then they defined that as, there was a Sabbath day's walk. Whatever the nearest synagogue was to you, that distance from your house to the synagogue was a Sabbath day's walk, and you could do that without violating the Sabbath. And so if you knew that you needed to stop at a friend's house to pick up some milk and eggs on the way home, you could just like put a rope onto your house that was long enough to give you the extra travel distance because you hadn't left home until you left the rope. That's what legalism does. It just kills, right? We begin to codify things in such a way that you're constantly tripping over somebody else's interpretation. What we're actually talking about here in this text is not a battle over the Sabbath, and it's not a battle of like Old Testament versus New Testament, as I've heard it, you know, people kind of teach. Uh, We're talking about a a battle of what the scripture actually says versus the interpretation of tradition. Uh, What we're talking about is Jesus defending the words of Moses over against midrash, over against that codification of tradition. And so, uh, we have traditions, right? Uh, if you grew up in the Bible Belt South, you know, uh, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't date the girls that do, you know, I mean, you, you, maybe you've heard some of those things. Uh, I can remember in Texas, it doesn't fly in Florida, you know, here in Florida, uh, we, uh, uh, we have lots of water, uh, and uh, so we have Mixed swimming, you know, we, boys and girls swimming together. But like in Texas, I can remember like they called it mixed bathing. I wasn't—I'd never saw a bar of soap anywhere. But apparently, that was a really bad thing to do, along with playing dominoes and cards, and and so there was these fears, and we built laws around those things. Or like when I was at Oklahoma Christian, going to school, and you know, like I, I was—we were told we couldn't work at certain stores and and you couldn't have facial hair. I don't know why. The founder of the school had a really nice beard. But apparently it was not permissible for us to have beards. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what, how they thought we were going to send there. But, uh, and then we had rules about dancing, right? And you couldn't dance, uh, you know, and uh, things like that. I, just lots of rules that aren't in the Scripture. And Jesus is dealing with this heart condition where they've made the rules of men the law, and in essence, they've basically ignored the law and made it all about keeping their tradition. Now, it was well understood within Judaism, it is in Midrash, that you could break Sabbath For the sake of life and death, or for the sake of another person's well being. In other words, mamas can take care of their babies who have a fever, right? Uh, Whether that is a life or death situation or not, it's, it's just well being. If your oxen or your cow falls into a ditch and you're about to lose your livelihood, you could go rescue. Your cow, you could go rescue your oxen because it was understood this would be a game changer. If I lose my cow and, and that's what I do for a living is I milk my cow and I sell milk to my neighbors. Like there's a real problem if I lose my livelihood from the standpoint that it's Sabbath. And so there was mercy well, yeah, you can rescue your cow. That's not—I mean, that's like an exception. You do a little work in that case, because that's not normative. You're not going to rescue your cow every week, unless it's like really dumb. I don't know, but you know, uh, <laughs> you know, the understanding is it's 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 really critical. Here in this situation, I want you to think about what it meant for this guy that he's been laying there for 38 years. Does that sound like a life interrupter to you? When you're hoping and waiting for healing? Anybody here know what it's like to have a debilitating life condition, even a temporary one? I I remember a, a About five years ago, I did a real job on my knee. I couldn't, and every time I moved, it felt like somebody was taking a hacksaw through my leg, you know, and I, I just, I couldn't do anything. It was very debilitating. I remember going into places that are supposed to be handicap accessible, and I was like, oh, no, it's not. Even the doctor's office. I was thinking, like, this guy specializes in doing surgeries on people's legs and knees, right? And it was horrible to get in and out of that place. And I like complained, like, isn't that kind of like defeating things if you just if I can't even get in here to get you know attention and can't even go to the bathroom? I mean, you know, I, when you have a debilitating condition, it's life interrupting, isn't it? Maybe even I think about some of our folks at home who watch from home. They can't, they're not here with us, not because they don't want to be, they're just in a particular debilitating situation. I promise you, it's life interrupting. This man's condition, life interrupting. And I want you to think in a world where there was no system like social insecurity or you know, uh, or any kind of uh, assistance, EBT, none of that. Think about the desperateness of his situation. I think it's by no accident that we're told that 38 years, you know, you notice how close 38 is to 40? You know, like the 40 years in the wilderness of Israel, you know, being in a situation. Uh, they're in bondage. And then finally, he is able to be free. He is healed. He's going to be able to make a living. He's going to be able to have a life. Is that not huge? Is that not mercy? I mean, it's not just that he was healed, it's that he has a life again. I mean, like, this ought to be a moment of tremendous celebration. If you look at someone who, like, radically recovers, suddenly recovers, and that doesn't, like, bring you joy, there's, man, you're, there's something wrong with you. Worse yet, if you can look at this and go, ah, oh, this is horrible. You're carrying your mat on the Sabbath. like they make the grinch look like a big tenderhearted guy you know at this moment i mean like there is something really messed up with your thinking that right now that your biggest concern is somebody's carrying your mat now why are they concerned about that because that codification that i was talking about the the rope and if you can don't if you have the rope is long enough you can add distance you haven't left home yet In the midst of that kind of messed up tradition, one of the traditions was, well, if you carried your mat, your bed, rolled it up and carried it anywhere, that was work. It didn't say it in the Bible. It's tradition. Nothing but tradition. This guy's just been healed after 38 years. And he didn't put his trust in the water. He put his trust in Jesus. Like there, There's something that's happened here that should be a moment of celebration. And instead, they're so backwards. All the focus is on, yeah, but you're carrying your mat. If this had been a real healing. Well, I think it'll do until a real healing comes along. How about that? And the thought that somebody else... I mean, like, where did you think the healing came from, if not from God? you You almost get the idea, like, these people are ready to bring God up on Sabbath charges, you know? Like, hey, God, you need to obey your word. So Jesus, like, in the midst of this whole accusation, kind of the funny thing is here, he starts quoting their own tradition against them. It's like he knows Midrash better than they do. It's, it's kind of fun, actually. The, the tradition was God is always working. When they looked at the whole thing of Sabbath and they were trying to explain the Sabbath, they were like, well, yes, God rests, but the kind of rest that God does is not like the way you and I rest. When you and I rest from work, it means that we need to stop doing these things. But, but God, because he is the the eternal God because he is God over the entire cosmos that what it means is that he, he stepped back from that emotionally but that God is continually supporting the universe God is continually caring for us God continually listens to our prayers God never stops. Amen. That's tradition you know what? I can also like find some good things in the New Testament that you know, would point that way. I can point to a few things in the, in the Old Testament that would give you that indication, right? But, but it's, tra- it's interpretation. It doesn't say that specifically. And so we look at this whole thing, and, and, and so he just points out, well, tradition says this. The Father is always working. Don't! <laughs> And so I'm just doing what my father is doing. And that makes them really furious. Then they lose their ever-loving minds at this point because now he's not only like, I mean, people have been healed on the Sabbath and this guy's life has been changed and people are excited and they're believing in Jesus and everything. And now he's like taking their own tradition and like beat them with the ugly stick over the head, you know, and like going, listen to yourself. And they're, in a, they're just in a froth, man. They're losing their ever-loving minds. Tremendous irony. Also a lot of, it's kind of funny in a way, you know, from our perspective. But then they press Jesus and they press the lame man all the more. It's really tragic. When religion, like, keeps people crushed instead of setting them free. Jesus moves the debate from tradition to what the Bible actually says, away from dead religion to authentic relationship. But I want to stress again, it's not a battle between Old Testament and New Testament. Testament concepts. God is the unchanging God. We're talking about interpretations that are flawed. We're talking about a way of looking at things and we're talking about misuse of the Bible versus the heart of what God intended. And so then he begins to explain to them eternal life, not as a destination. That's one of the things I think we miss often in modern Christianity is that we have treated eternal life as a destination. Someday when we get to heaven, can I remind you that in the text, uh, the, that the concept is is that heaven and earth collide, there is a new heaven and a new earth, and that he is making all things new. It's not that you and I go away and sit on a cloud and you know, uh, butt naked and strum harps, which just sounds terrifying to me, uh, you know, so. Um, but it's the, the overflow of knowing the Father and no one knows the Father like Jesus does. Because there's no separation. That's, that he's driving home this point. It's not about subordination. It's, it's not about hierarchy. Like, just Please don't get wrapped around the axle on those things. He, he's driving home the point. There's no separation between the Father and the Son. To know the Son is to know the Father. To know the will of the Son is to know the will of the Father. To honor the Son is to honor the Father. To do the will of the Son is to do the will of the Father. There's no separation. And then, when you know the Son, he says, then, then you pass into eternal life. You begin to, as you experience knowing Him, like eternal life is invade your space. If you know that the Son, you indeed will someday avoid judgment. But the point is that if you know the Son, that you pass from death to life in the now. You you bypass the judgment later, but you begin eternal life in the present. He says, this is eternal life. This This is how you experience it. This is how you encounter it. And then he says, an hour is yet coming when those who are dead in the tombs, meaning all the dead, saved and unsaved, when the, there's a moment when the dead in their tombs will hear the voice of God, some will be resurrected to life and others to the resurrection of judgment. Then he turned right back to his, eternal, his primary point. But eternal life is in the present age, not just a future promise. And he points to them the scriptures and he tells them about what John the Baptist said, and all the the evidence that is there for them, and what John the Baptist said about Jesus, and, and what Moses said within the Scriptures about the Messiah, and he tells them, listen, you search the Scriptures diligently because you think it's in them that you possess eternal life. Now, the big but in the room was that they did not have eternal life through the scriptures. Now, I just gotta, I wanna say, every time I do this, it always like, comes back to get me, but I'm gonna try it again anyhow. I guess I'm, you know, what's that whole definition of insanity, you keep doing the same thing? Yeah. Um, uh, but I wanna say this, I, I want you to listen very carefully about what I, I'm about to say. Please do not mishear what I'm about to say. Because I know someone's gonna accuse me of something else. So I, 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 So. I. Listen, you do not possess eternal life by the scriptures. You possess eternal life by knowing the Son. Those scriptures, specifically he's speaking of in the Old Testament, point us to Jesus, but they do not and cannot save us. And in one of the traditions around Mishnah was the idea that because we have the Scriptures, we are in possession of them, not because we know them, not because we understand them, not because of what they point us to, but literally the tradition was because we are the keepers, the chosen people, we were chosen to receive the instructions, the Torah, therefore we have eternal life. Their belief was they could not be lost because God gave them the Bible. And unfortunately, there's a number of people that have got nice gold leaves tucked under their shoulder who believe that as well. You know, it's got a prominent place on their TV. Well, not anymore, because we don't have box TVs anymore. Remember box TVs and you had the Bible? And younger people are going, you could set something on top of a TV. (laughs) Doesn't it hang on the wall? I mean, you know, so. Um, but that idea of like worshiping the text. What they were basically saying was, well, we have the Bible, so therefore we're saved. And since you don't have the Bible, you're lost. Kind of tragic. And what he tells them in it. He says, listen, it's 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 a tremendously sad statement. You search the scriptures diligently because you think that it's in them that you possess eternal life. It's like being in the room, but not being at the party. It's the idea that you would like read your Bible over and over again and just absolutely miss the point. I think it's one of the things that you and I like. and Sometimes in church culture, right, we get so wrapped around the axle about being church people and kind of miss what it is to be Jesus people. I don't mean as a subculture or or something like that in society. I mean, I'm talking about like that you and I would just really love Jesus and that we would regularly do and say the kinds of things that Jesus would do and say. And that we wouldn't attach it to something else. Like it wouldn't be redefined by our politics. It wouldn't be redefined by our Uh, our our social group it wouldn't be redefined by uh, you know uh, social behaviors in a subgroup a culture that is wrapped around things like playing dice or dancing or you know whether or not you can say hello to somebody in the liquor store right that like that what where you and I what we would get wrapped around is Jesus and then doing and saying the kinds of things that Jesus would do and say—that's wholly different than church culture. I don't know if you've really read much in the Gospels, but if you start reading the Gospels, I, I guarantee you it will make you a dangerous person to everyone around you and a really wonderful person to everyone around you. It will make you dangerous in the sense of that, like you—you will find yourself completely out of step with church and society. You really will. Because too often, church is about religion. Hello? I know I'm on dangerous ground here, you know, but like, I want you to understand that our our first and foremost commitment should be to Jesus, right? Not to our church culture. And so, he says, you don't possess eternal life. And, and he says that, one of the, and that the, evidence, the greatest evidence that you don't is that the love of God is not in your heart. Like when you look at people, when you can look at the guy who gets up and walks away from 38 years of disaster and you can go, well, clearly you're breaking the law. And that's what you care about. The love of God is not in your heart. I don't care even if the scripture actually said that. If that's your response in that moment, there's something wrong with your heart. It's cold as stone. That you and I would not have mercy. That you and I would not be interested in the person being whole. Like, I want people to be whole, don't you? You study those scriptures, and yet you've missed the point. And so as these Jews, the rabbis and teachers and all sorts, like fell all over themselves. And he even says, listen, the testimony I have is not my own, John the Baptist came declaring these things, even before I, re- I came on the scene, and he pointed to this, and you we have the works of God as I'm bringing these healings, and, and I'm proclaiming the word of God, and, and all of these things are pointing to what the Old Testament has been telling you all of your lives. Uh, look at all the evidence that's out there, not my own evidence, I'm not telling you all these things about myself. I want you to look at all the external evidence. God the Father as my witness. And he goes, but here's what's going to happen. Someone else will come along and tell you that they're the Messiah. Remember what I have said this before, that there were literally thousands of people claiming to be Messiah in Jesus' day. And that some writers like Josephus and others like have told us some of those stories. We know some of those stories from antiquity, but the vast majority of them have disappeared into history with no, not even a recollection of their name. We just are told that there are literally thousands of people that were calling themselves the Messiah. We do know from Mishnah and Midrash, the Talmud, things like that, that there were some rabbis that people thought were the Messiah, just waiting for them to declare it to be so. What were they waiting for? For self-proclaimed men to tell everybody how important they were. You see what Jesus is speaking to? You're going to have somebody in your midst, guys like Hillel that were around right then, and they're going to declare themselves the Messiah, and you're going to believe that. But when the signs, when the evidence from heaven is all around you, you're wrapped around all these things, all this tradition. You're missing the point entirely. And what I'm telling you is that you study the Scriptures day and night. You have given yourselves to the study of Scripture. And the, and the tragic thing is, is that you have missed it. And that the love of God is not in your hearts. That's tragic. It was ugly. And it seems that we have a propensity toward that. Like even in the modern church, following all over superstar pastors, rock star worship leaders, YouTube theologians, all in hot pursuit of religion. But what about the love of neighbor and the love of God? the foundation of the law and the prophets. That if my, if my Christianity is authentic, if it's real, if it's the transformative power of the gospel, that I would be coming more and more like Jesus so that I could say to you, follow me as I follow Christ. That the love of God and the love of neighbor would, would so foment in my heart, that the overflow of that, that the change in my condition, my attitude would be that I would love my neighbors as I love myself. That I'd be worried about my friends perishing. I'd be worried about the neighbor that I don't like perishing. I'd be worried about the nations perishing. Like there would be this sense deep within me that because the love of God is working up and through me that I couldn't stop caring about my neighbors, my friends, my families, yet even my enemies. Or I can be satisfied with empty religion that's worried about mats and dominoes, who's dancing, who's in the beer aisle at Publix. And that would be tragic, wouldn't it? spent all our years in church and not actually know him. Not actually love whom he loves. To seek the approval of men, our neighbors, our deacons, our elders, our pastors, our YouTube theologians. Instead of the approval of God. I think the cornerstone issue in all of that really is it's discipleship. I know there he goes, talking about discipleship again, but you know, like real discipleship does, does not make you a disciple of a church. I, as much as I love vine life, like the last thing I want you to do is be a vine life disciple, I want you to be a Jesus disciple. Real discipleship isn't membership at First Church of Smallville. Real discipleship isn't teaching people to, you know, it, what, it's, it's walking with people so that they know the eternal God and Jesus Christ, His Son. It's walking alongside of somebody so that they learn to hear His voice for themselves, not so that you can tell them what the voice of God said not so that they can depend on you, not so that they can rely on you, but that they could rely on him. Real discipleship takes us to the scriptures, not to fight with others, not to have scripture battles, not to get on YouTube and relentlessly or or on Twitter and tell everybody else why they're going to hell, but to hear the voice of God and then do what it says. Real discipleship, it doesn't simply just talk about signs and wonders or keeping the Sabbath. It teaches us to rest in God. It teaches us to pray for one another, to pray for the sick, the broken, the lost, the least. It teaches us to rely on God and do what God is doing. Just like Jesus. See, that's the goal of our faith. is that you and I, that you and I would be like Jesus. And so Jesus laid his hands on one person among hundreds because that's what the Father was doing. And so that's kind of the invitation to you and I. Just to, It's not that you and I solve every problem. It's not that you and I can like lead and teach every person. It's that you and I would press in, listen to his voice, and when he opens doors in hearts and lives, when he invites us to go through the door that you and I would be obedient, that we would be bold and courageous and in that moment we would just simply do what the Father is doing. I'm not asking you to be a rock star, I'm asking you to trust him. Well, it really boils down to this, whoever loves the Father loves the Son Whoever has the Son has the Father. Christianity is not a system of exchange, a religious experience in the truest sense. It's, it's not about appeasing the God's to find favor. Christianity is a way of life which we engage God through the Son to know the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we become not only in tune with his leadership, his voice, his presence, but we increasingly become like him in our thoughts, our manner of life, our attitudes, in which we do and say the kinds of things that Jesus did and spoke. And that's the invitation for you and I to be apprentices of Jesus, to learn and live eternal life. Let's stand together, shall we? Father God, we want to thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. And Lord, our hope is that our, our trust, our confidence would not be in owning a copy of the text or simply being familiar with the words of the Bible. But that our hope is that we would come to know you And that we would see who you are in those scriptures. We would hear your heart in those scriptures. And that we would allow those scriptures to begin to renew our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that becoming more and more like you, that we would overflow with your love. that with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we would love you and then we would love our neighbors as ourselves. We're asking that the embodiment of the Ten Commandments, the spirit of the law, would become no longer a burden to us, that weighs us down, but instead it would become the passion of our hearts to want to do the things that bring honor and glory to your name. And that your presence would be manifest in us. That as we speak to our friends and our neighbors and our family, that they would hear the kindness and the mercy of God. They would hear the hope of eternal life. They would see within us the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. And they would long for more of you, even as do we. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask the prayer team, go ahead and come on up. And if you have any need this morning, whether it's asking the Lord to be at work in you for, you know, demonstrating His love and mercy to your friends and neighbors and family, or whether it's asking God to bring healing into your life or to help you in some other way. Like, let me just invite you to come and get some prayer this morning. Otherwise, hope to see you next week. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.